All right. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Gary Vinson, and TJ needed to know that I'm Gary Vinson for the recording. I think I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, just to make sure everybody's in the right room, though, you're here for stewardship with estate planning. Because if you're not here for that, you're probably not going to want to sit here for the next 45 minutes and listen to me. All right. All right, good. Well, thanks for being here today and being part of this session. Um, I do a lot of work for the network. I've been doing legal work for the Assemblies of God for probably 15, 16 years now. Um, Usually I'm working with pastors and usually working from a stewardship standpoint with churches. So talking to pastors and boards and trying to understand how we can better steward church resources and how we can do better there. Um, But today they asked me to do stewardship in the estate planning area. So we're going to dive deep today in the weeds and get into some estate planning, some of the legal things and practical considerations there. Um, And then at the end, I'm really hoping to have 10 or 15 minutes of question and answer session. So if anybody has questions along the way, maybe jot that note down and we'll save those for the end. If there's anything that I am saying today that somebody in this room says, Gary, this is just so confusing, I'm not following you, please put up your hand and give me another shot at it because I don't want to be presenting and confusing everybody. I want to be clarifying some things. Um, So, okay, I'm just going to jump right in. So with estate planning, usually the most common document we talk about is a last will and testament. And when people come into my office and we talk about what a last will and testament is, I'm going to say 50-60% of the time they misunderstand how this works, what a last will and testament is. So last will and testament is a written list of instructions. So I'm going to go through three variables here that we're going to want to touch on. It's a written list of instructions. It's a written list of instructions to the probate court. And it's a written list of instructions to the probate court for assets that are still in our name when we pass away. If we have minor children, the last will and testament also touches on guardianship for those minor children. So I'm going to touch on each of those variables and talk through them a little bit. It's a written list of instructions. Many people come into my office saying, Gary, I thought what you put into your will is what happens. No. No. In fact, a lot of times what you put into your will, the court does not follow. Sometimes the judge looks at the instruction and says, this is instruction that there are laws or statutes that would prevent me from following this instruction. So let me give myself as an example. I'm married and I have three children. If I were to put into my will... I want to give everything to my kids when I die. A judge might not follow that instruction because there's a statute in Ohio that mandates so much of my estate go to my surviving spouse first. Then whatever's left over might go to the kids. So that's one example of a judge saying, no, I'm not going to follow Gary's instruction. Another example might be if the judge thinks it's frivolous. So had this not too long ago, grandma puts into her will. I give $10,000 to my grandson when he quits smoking. Well, we can all agree. That's a good idea. We want to encourage the grandson to quit smoking. But the judge says this, Gary, that's a frivolous exercise. The picture I have in my head is that this grandson's going to walk in to the courtroom, throwing away his last cigarette, right? Judge, I quit smoking. I'm done. Give me my $10,000. And what are the chances? By the time they're back in the car driving away, they're smoking again. That's a frivolous exercise. So sometimes things like that. I'm just not going to do it. The point here is, what you put into your will does not always get followed. 
Now, the attorneys, the court, the judge, we understand that those are your dying wishes. You're not here anymore, so you don't get a chance to clarify. So we do work hard to accomplish those instructions, but they are just instructions. Two, the probate court. So another commonly misunderstood thing. If I die today, and I have an account over at Huntington Bank, and my will says I give everything to my wife, so different than what I said before. In this will, I'm giving everything to my wife. My wife takes that will over to the bank and says, Banker, Gary's will says everything comes to me, including the bank accounts. It even says bank accounts on this will. He's deceased. Where's my money? Banker says, sorry, wife, that's not how this works. That paper is, or the words are not worth the paper it's written on here at the bank. You have to take the will to a judge. You meet with the judge. The judge first is going to determine even if we're going to validate this will or probate this will is what they call it. But the judge is controlling everything there. The judge will create a judicial order, so an order for this bank account, that mandates what Huntington has to do with the bank account. So the banker's telling my wife, you come back with the judicial order. We always do what the judge tells us to do. And that's where the money will go. But that will doesn't mean anything to us at the bank. So, only good in probate court. And why is that important? Most people are looking to avoid probate court when you can. And this comes back to the stewardship principle here. Money in probate court that can be avoided, attorney's fees, some court costs, administrative fees, these are things that if we are able to keep things out of probate court, we're enhancing our estate. We're saving that money for our estate. More money is going to the kingdom, more money is going to our family, the inheritance that we're leaving, all of that increases by being a little better steward on this. So probate court's expensive. I tell people usually about 3 to 5% of the gross value of your estate is a pretty good range for what it's going to cost to get through probate court. The attorney's fees, that's probably the biggest piece of that. Attorneys aren't cheap. But then the court does things like, um, well, I'm not going to call it unreasonable because I wouldn't want to upset a judge, but things that I just don't know that are necessary. So if I pass away and I have a house, there's a pretty good chance the judge is going to require my estate to appraise that home before they do anything with it. So we might spend $750 on an appraisal just so the judge knows how much my home is worth. Now me, I kind of disagree with that because I'm thinking, we'll know how much the home is worth once we sell it. (laughs) What difference does it make what we think it's worth today? Once we sell it, that's what the real value is. So do we really need to spend that $750? Not always. But if the judge says we're spending it, we're spending the money to do that. So those costs add up. The court costs for just scanning in the pages now, those keep going up. So if I have a six-page will, I'm spending $30 just to scan in the will. It's crazy. Then each hearing has fees. So there's just different things that add up in that probate court. So cost is the biggest one that people are usually trying to avoid probate court. Keep me out of probate court because of that cost. Time is another used to be about 12 months is the time frame to get everything through probate court. It's not 12 months from the time I die. It's 12 months from the time we open up the estate. So if I pass away today, my wife would say that was unexpected, she's grieving, it could take her two or three months before she's ready to open up the estate. Well, it's going to be 12 months from that date. But here's what I'm going to tell you, it's not 12 months right now. It's closer to 18 months. 
at least in my practice. COVID played a big role in that. Um, we have one probate judge in each county for administration of probate estates. And when COVID hit, it slowed everything down in the court system. But people were dying at a higher rate, not a lower rate. So we just got way behind. The courts are desperately trying to catch up, but they're limited in how they can catch up. They're limited in their resources. So I'm telling people it's closer to 18 months now to get something through probate court. So time is another one. Yes? From the date we open up the estate. So not the date we pass away, but it's when we actually open up the estate in probate court. So the third thing that I tell people to be aware of, especially if we have minor children, everything in probate court is public. It's a public forum. Anybody can come down. Anybody can make their arguments as to why they should get a piece of your money. Weird things. I have neighbors come down saying, hey, I was cutting their grass for the last year. They were sick leading up to their death. So for the last year, they were sick. I just thought I'd do the neighborly thing. So I've been carrying their trash to the curb. I've been cutting their grass. I shoveled their snow. I should get some money for that, right, Judge? So they show up and ask for money. We have people that say, Judge, I sent my DNA into this website. And it says that was my dad. Now, he never knew I existed. (laughs) But the DNA is DNA. Do I get some of this money? Weird things. It's all public. I had a situation a couple years ago that really put some fear into me as to why I think these situations can be dangerous. So husband and wife had two kids. They both died same time. Husband and wife did. Kids were living. Kids were three and six, I want to say. Both mom and dad had a fairly sizable sum of life insurance. But they didn't do any estate planning, no estate planning at all. So I think between the two of them, it was maybe three or four million dollars in life insurance that they had. Well, there were grandparents on both sides that were coming to court, and the grandparents were saying, hey, we just want to share custody of these grandkids. Like, that's what would make sense. My daughter's deceased. The other family says my son is deceased. We're the natural grandparents. We should care for these kids. Because there was no planning. We're having a public forum, and the judge says, anybody that's interested in caring for these kids, come on down. Tell me your story. Well, next-door neighbors showed up at this hearing. We didn't know that they were going to show up, but they're there. And the argument they were making to the judge was, Judge, these kids just had a tragic tragedy. They lost their mom and dad all at once. Um, the last thing these kids need is to be removed from their neighborhood. Let's give them some continuity. Let's let them stay in a familiar place where they can stay familiar, right? Don't pull them away from their friends because all their friends live in this neighborhood. Don't pull them out of the school system. Let them stay in the school system because that's where all their friends are. This is where they're going to get the most support. Well, in that moment, the fear that came into me for the first time was, we don't know who these people are at all. If mom and dad were still living, what if? What if mom and dad were to tell me, Gary, these neighbors are bad people. In fact, they're so bad, we don't let our kids cut through their backyard when they come home from school. Or, these, kids are, these people are so bad, we don't let our kids trick-or-treat at that house. Well, we have no way of knowing that today, right? Because mom and dad are gone. So, as a parent, the court respects the fact that you love your kids more than anybody else on this planet. And that you want what's best for your kids beyond anybody else on this planet. 
So for you to put your wishes down into a piece of paper, onto a will, saying, these are the people that should be caring for my kids if I ever pass away, we as the attorneys and the judges understand how important that is. And we're going to pursue that to the fullest extent. Because if you think that's the best candidate, that's who we want for sure. But in the absence of knowing who you wanted, we don't know. So it was a scary thing. Now, I still think the judge got it right. Grandparents were involved. Neighbor didn't get anything. But it just was, it made me think. Made me, made me think. So this public forum thing, weird things happen. People show up and they make their case. And the judge, because remember our will, just instructions. So the judge can rewrite those instructions and say, oh, well, this changes everything. So I'm going to give money over here. Or, oh, this changes everything. I'm going to give the children over here. So keep that in mind. When we can avoid probate court, we probably want to. So how do we avoid probate court? <laughs> Let's come back to that. So remember, written list of instructions under this will to the probate court for assets that are still in our name when we pass away. Now, on this guardianship issue that I was talking about with children, that has to go through probate court. If we have minor children, a judge is always going to be involved in who becomes the parent of those children. In this environment, we don't think this way because we're good people. But there are bad people in this world. And if we stop to think about bad things that could happen if we didn't involve a judge and where our kids go. If I could legally say, okay, fine, when I die, they have my kids. That would allow bad people to do some bad things. So for that reason, a judge always needs to be involved in guardianship. If we die with any children under the age of 18 or any children that need guardianship, the judge is going to be involved in that. But these assets, that's how we're going to bypass probate court is on our assets. And that's where the cost is, that's where the real time delays are, and where the aggravation is. So I said it's for assets that are still in our name when we pass away. I sometimes say stuck in our name. I used that Huntington example a little while ago. I've got a bank account over at Huntington. Let's say it's in my name only. My wife's name is not on this account, and I have no beneficiary on this account. When I die... The account's in my name. It's stuck in my name. Nobody can do anything with that. Huntington can't decide what they want to do with it. My wife can't do anything with it. We have to get a judge involved. But what if it wasn't stuck in my name? What if I designated a beneficiary on this account? When I die, if I put my wife down as the beneficiary, my wife shows up at the bank with a death certificate and her driver's license. Death certificate showing that I died, because they're not going to take her word for it. <laughs> Also, her driver's license to prove that she is who she says she is. And then they're going to write her a check. We don't need a will. We don't need attorneys. We don't need judges. They look at how much money is in my bank account, and they write her a check and hand it to her. There's your money. If I put my kids on there, they're writing checks to my kids, handing them that money. We're bypassing probate court. Well, we can do that with almost everything we have. We can do that with bank accounts. We can do that with life insurance. We can do that with investments. And we can do that with automobiles. A lot of people don't know that here in Ohio. We have what's called a transfer on death title. You can go to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, keep the car in your name, but TOD is what it is at the bottom. TOD, which stands for transfer on death, and then you put the person's name in. When you die, they own that car now. Again, no judges, no lawyers, no wills, nothing. 
So let me come back to this example that I used earlier. I don't know if you remember when I said I have this will maybe and I give everything to my kids instead of my wife. Remember that example? Well, let's say that I go over to Huntington and I put my three kids down as the beneficiaries on my Huntington account. But my will still says everything goes to my wife when I die, including bank accounts. And then I die. My wife shows up at the bank again with this will, and the banker says, sorry wife, that doesn't do anything here. You have to take that to the judge. And my wife runs up to the judge and says, judge, will, Gary's deceased, bank account, give me the bank account. Judge says, I can't control that bank account. It's not in Gary's name. Oh, wait, hold on a second. That was Gary's bank account. Oh, it was up until the moment of death. Once I died and breathed my last breath, the contract that I signed at Huntington said that Huntington takes that out of Gary's name and put it into his daughter's names. So if the account is in my daughter's names, it's not stuck in my name. The judge can't do anything with it, so the judge is telling my wife, you're out of luck on that account. Now, my wife is in my office a lot. She sits in presentations like this and hears me give them. So let's say she's savvy, and she says, judge, hold on. That's fine. I understand that concept. But there's a statute here in the state of Ohio that so much money is supposed to go to the wife first, before the kids. So I want to stake my claim under that statute. Judge says, that's a good point, wife. And the first dollar that comes into probate court, I'm going to hold on to that dollar and we'll consider whether you get it or not. But if no money ever goes to probate court, there's nothing there for her to get. These beneficiary designations, again, the judge only has control over things that are still in my name. And because those beneficiaries took them out of my name at the point of death, judge can't control it. Judge can't do anything. That money is going to my kids and my wife's out of luck. So these beneficiary designations are really, really key. But sometimes the beneficiary designations are maybe insufficient. Maybe it's not comprehensive enough. We want to have other things that we protect against. So coming back and using myself as an example, I told you I have three daughters, or three kids, they're all daughters. And yes, that's why my hair's falling out. <laughs> my oldest two, they're both married. They're full-time missionaries, by the way, and so I'm very blessed. I'm, and God gave me the perfect son-in-laws, the guys that I was praying for since before my kids were born. So I'm very, very blessed there. But my third daughter, she was kind of the surprise. We thought we were done having kids, and God's like, nope, one more. So I've got 11 years between my oldest and my youngest. So I've got this 16-year-old at home. So for me, these beneficiary designations maybe don't work real well. Because if I were to die today, I don't know my 16-year-old. She's too young, legally. You have to be at least 18 to receive the inheritance. But even if she were 18, that might feel too young for her to get a lump sum of money. So what if, what if I want to protect against other contingencies? If I go over to the bank and I say, okay, Huntington, here's what I want you to do. If I die today, don't give that money to my 16-year-old. Give it to the older two, but not the 16-year-old. Hold hers. Let's say give it to her at 25. But between now and then, if she needs it, make sure she can access that money for her needs. The banker says, sorry, Gary, we don't do that. We take your money, we invest it, we pay you a dividend, and we let you take it back. That's all we do. So this is where I'm going to introduce the concept of a trust. Some of you may have heard of these before. There are different types of trusts for different purposes. The trust that we're really going to dial in on today is to avoid probate court. 
It's really just designed to avoid probate court and regulate the distribution of our assets to the beneficiaries. So there are other trusts out there for tax purposes. There are other trusts out there for um, um, liability issues. But this trust is just to avoid that probate court and regulate the distribution. So I'm going to oversimplify the concept of a trust. And Evan's heard this before. And Dave's back there. He's probably heard it before too. Hey, Dave. So some of you have heard this. Sorry if it's redundant. But think of a trust as a bucket. The idea is, I want to get all of my things into the bucket, into the trust. So I put my house into my trust, I put my cars into my trust, I put my bank accounts into my trust, my investments, everything's going into this bucket. When I die, it's not in my name, it's in the name of a trust. So the court, the probate court, doesn't have any jurisdiction over it. I took it out of my name by putting it into the name of this bucket. Now, this type of trust, we can get in and out of all we want during our lifetime. So if I put my house and my cars into the bucket, I can get them back out. All right? I'm not locking them away. And then when I die, we're going to put a lid over the bucket. And the lid says, this is when we open the bucket, this is what we take out, and this is who we give it to. That looks and feels a lot like a will. It's very similar to a will. The difference is, this is a contract. So the will is the public forum for going to probate court to manage my estate. It's the public way of doing it. A trust is a private settlement. It's me saying, I'm taking my things over here, and I want to do it my way. I don't want the judges and lawyers involved. So this lid, it becomes very operative because it tells us what we're going to do with everything in that bucket when you pass away. Well, we can have all kinds of fun on a lid. We can parent from beyond, if that's what we like to think of it as as being. But for me, I thought, yeah, I want my kids to get that money in installments. I don't want them to get it all at once. I remember what I was like at 18, and I can tell you for sure I would not have been responsible with a large sum of money. And at 25, I was still figuring it out. (laughs) 30, okay, yeah, no, I was doing a little better. So for me, on my lid, it says my kids would get one-third of their inheritance at the age of 25. They get a second third at the age of 30, and they get the balance at age 35. Up until those ages, if they did have a need, maybe their health, maybe for school, just their groceries, whatever it is, because I'm gone now, there's a lot of things they could have needs for if I'm deceased. So this lid says we can always open the bucket and take things out to pay for their needs. I'm just not giving them a lump sum of cash until 25, 30, and 35 then they're going to have that money they can spend it any way they want. This bucket my wife and I share, so we have one trust that we we both share. If I die, everything in the bucket belongs to her. If she dies, everything in the bucket belongs to me. So it's a shared bucket. If we both die, that's when that lid comes on. Now the lid can only be changed by me or my wife. Nobody else can ever change that lid. So once my wife and I are deceased, if my kids don't like what's on that lid, tough. This is a contract. We have to do what's on that lid. And because of that, we put a lot of other contingencies on the lid. Because there's a lot of things that could come up, things that could happen. For instance, what if one of my children passed away before me? Well, my lid anticipates that and says if that happens, that child's interest would go to their children. If they have kids. Don't have grandkids yet, but praying for them. Yeah, that's right. Pray with me. All right. Believe them in. 
Um, but if that happens, the grandkids, same principle. I probably don't want them to get it at age 18. So the lid says they get it at 25, 30, and 35. Just making sure that they're more responsible ages when they receive that inheritance. The point is, on this lid, you can be very flexible. You can anticipate all of these events. You capture those onto that lid, and then, when you pass away, we're not spending any money on attorneys. We're not spending any money on judges. We don't have all these delays in probate court. Now, more than likely, Lord willing, I'm going to live a full life. My kids are going to be well beyond that age of 35 when I die. So what's, the, the, what's going to happen? We're going to sell everything in the bucket. We're going to write three checks, one to each daughter, and we're done. This process might take six weeks, just because we've got to sell a house, so selling real estate takes a few minutes. But if you had everything liquid, if it were all in investments, banks and financial investments, well, two or three days, they just write those checks. However long it takes for the check to clear, my kids have the money. It's really that fast. And again, we bypassed probate court and all of that mess in the process. So the trust ends up being a really convenient way to regulate that distribution of our estate to our beneficiaries without going through probate court and without having all those fees and costs. What's the downside? Sometimes people say that. Gary, the way you just explained it, it sounds like everybody should have a trust. <laughs> Why doesn't everybody have a trust? Um, I have to be a little bit careful here. I don't know that I want to put motive behind people that I don't know. But it would be logical for some attorneys to not talk about trust. Because if my business model, we as lawyers, we're allowed to have business models too, right? Like everybody's out to make money. It's capitalism. That's the society we live in. So if my business model was to sell everybody that came into my office a will, I recognize that when my clients start to die, more often than not, their family calls me because my name's on the will. Not because they have to use me. There's no entitlement. There's no obligation. Nobody has to, to call Gary. But just because I prepared that will for mom and dad and my name is on there, they usually call me. And I'm getting 3 to 5% off of each one of those. It would be really easy to justify not talking about more aggressive st strategies, right? Because that works pretty well for me. Again, I'm not putting that motive behind people I don't know, but it's just, I don't know. I don't know why more attorneys don't talk about it. I think another thing is it can be confusing because there are different types of trusts out there. A lot of people get confused. They think it's only for super rich people. They think it's only for tax issues. They think it's only if I'm going into a nursing home, which those are good reasons to do other types of trusts. But these trusts make sense for the average person. Cost is probably a big deterrent. To do a will, you're probably maybe one-third of the cost to do a trust. If I was arguing for the trust, I might say, whatever you're spending on a trust is probably a whole lot less than what we're going to spend later on attorneys and court costs. So there's almost always a net benefit from doing that trust. But I could also argue, well, when I pass away, my kids... They don't miss the money that's going to the judges and to the attorneys. And guys, truthfully, they usually don't. Whatever they inherit was so much more than what they had the day before, they're already thinking about how they're going to spend that money. They're not thinking about the attorneys and the judges and how much their piece is. So, 
for me, if I'm spending money on an attorney today and I'm writing a check for a will or I'm writing a check for a trust, and I understand that that trust is more expensive and it's costing me more to save my kids later, well, I can understand that's not always the best justification, right? It might feel better to spend the money on that will, save the money for me because I'm the one that's going to use it, and then later it costs my kids a little bit more. But that's just coming back to the stewardship principle, right? And understanding what our options are, understanding what works best for us. And not everybody needs a trust. In fact, people come into my office and sometimes they're very sad situations, but we know the doctors have already given the prognosis and we know what's coming. We know that we have maybe a week, 10 days, something like that. We may not need much paperwork, guys, because at that point, you can start giving everything to these individuals. Well, you don't need a will. You don't need a trust. Just go to Huntington today and close out that bank account and give it to whomever you want to give it to. We know you're not going to need it, right? So we can eliminate a lot of that. But most of us, we don't know when we're going to pass away. We don't know what we're going to have when we pass away. We don't know how our beneficiaries are going to be situated in life when we pass away. We don't know if there are lawsuits out there or other issues going on. All those messy things. So those beneficiary designations, they can really help when we know exactly what's going on. But a lot of times we don't, and that's when the more sophisticated planning steps in. So I'm going to kind of transition away from some of that conversation, because I think we've covered the will, probate court, and trusts, and what those can do for us. But there's a few other things I want to talk about and still leave time for some questions. So when I talk about estate planning, everything we've talked about up until now was when we pass away. But there are some documents that you want to consider for while we're still living. Let's talk about a financial power of attorney, a durable general financial power of attorney. Here in Ohio, this is a document where you appoint an agent to make any and all financial decisions on your behalf. Probably the most important thing that I try to get across to my clients is understanding this takes effect immediately. The moment I sign my name on this document and it gets notarized, it's a valid document. It does not wait for me to become incompetent. It does not wait for me to become incapacitated. So to help better understand that, I'm going to use my wife here as an example. Some of you guys know my wife. She is lovely, I promise. For those of you that don't know her, I promise she's lovely. But I'm going to make her the bad guy in this example because it just helps prove the point. (laughs) So if you ever get a chance to meet her, give her the benefit of the doubt. Um, But I have this document. My wife is my agent. So I've appointed her as my agent. This authorizes her to do anything and everything on my behalf. In fact, this document pretty much says you do whatever she tells you to do as if Gary were there himself. You don't validate anything with Gary. You do what she says. She is now my mouthpiece. That's what this document does. So she walks into Huntington today. Remember that account that was in my name only at Huntington that I have. So her name's nowhere on this account. And she says, banker, I want all of the money out of Gary's bank account. And they say, you're not Gary Vinson. And she says, I know, but I have this special piece of paper here that says I'm his mouthpiece. I want you to give me all that money. They look at that piece of paper. They do not call me and say, Gary, is this okay? Because this document was intended to bypass that step. The whole reason why I went to a lawyer, had it prepared, signed it in front of a notary, was so the banker didn't call me. 
So the banker's not going to call me and say it's, if it's okay or not. They're going to give her the money. The banker does not ask my wife, what is Gary's condition physically, mentally? Is he okay or not? It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. They're going to give her that money. They also do not ask my wife, what do you plan to do with this money? (laughs) They just give her the money. So it's a big risk here. Because what if? What if my wife were dealing with some type of a gambling issue? All right? She takes all this money packs it into a suitcase, hops on an airplane. Actually, you guys see it in the movies. It's usually about a duffel bag. I mean, (laughs) the money does not fit into a suitcase unless they're all ones. (laughs) I've seen large sums of money before, and it's not as as much as you think. But anyway, she, she puts it into a duffel bag, hops on a plane, goes out to Vegas, and drops all of that on red. I'm not a gambler. Whatever, however that works. She gambles it away and loses Well, I'm in big trouble now. Because she had the authority to do that. I'm not allowed to go to the bank and say, Bank, why did you give her the money? Because if I did, the bank says, Because you told us to give her the money. Right? Like, that's what this document said. Can't sue the casinos. They didn't know that she was gambling somebody else's money. Now, I am allowed to sue my wife. Under this financial power of attorney, I know it gets even funnier. Wait till I tell you how it plays out. So under this power of attorney, she has a fiduciary duty to do what's in my best interest. The law requires her to be doing what's in my best interest. I think hopefully most of us in here should be able to agree that her gambling all the money away in Vegas was not in my best interest. Are we all on the same page there? Okay. So I'm allowed to sue her. But is that going to do me any good? If she's got a gambling problem, I can sue her all day, but the money's never coming back, right? It's gone. And it's gone forever. I'm never going to get it back. Now, this is also criminal. When she breaches her fiduciary duty, there are criminal consequences as well. So she goes to prison. That's no consolation either. So you mean to tell me, my wife's got a gambling addiction. She stole all my money and gambled it away. And now she's in prison. There's no consolation prize here, right? Maybe if my dog dies, I get a country western song out of this. I don't know. But no, it's bad. That's really, really bad. So that's the risk I'm up against. Because of that risk, this document is not for everybody. But I want to talk about the benefits, because you always do the risk-benefit analysis, and we make sure we understand, in spite of those risks, what the benefits are, and then we decide for ourselves whether it's good or not. We use it for convenience probably two or three times a year. Maybe I'm out of town, my wife needs to do something, she can sign on my behalf. Tax season is actually probably the best example. So a good friend of mine is my tax attorney, he's a CPA, and we do our taxes every year on the 15th. We just kind of like having that thing where we get to hold on to our money until the very last minute. <laughs> we don't give it to the government until they're, ready, until they're entitled to it. So I'm usually signing the tax returns at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. I'm the guy you see on TV that's putting it in the mailbox at midnight. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) But because I have power of attorney too, I gave my wife power of attorney, she gave me power of attorney. I'm allowed to sign her name on those tax returns, put them directly in the mailbox, and then go home and go to bed. If I did not have power of attorney, it's just inconvenience. I have to go home, wake up my wife, Definitely waking her up at 11 o'clock at night. She's rubbing the eyes out. Sign here. And then go back out to the post office and get it in the mailbox. So it's not the end of the world. But what if? What if something happens to me? What if I'm driving home today 
I'm in a car accident, and I had some head trauma in this accident. And the doctor said, Gary's not going to be recovering from this anytime soon. Now, I might have some incompetency. I might have some incapacity. This document is going to allow my wife to carry on in life after this accident, just like she did before. This document is going to allow her to sell my car. The car is in my name only. If I've got head trauma, I'm probably not going to be driving a car anytime soon. And if I have head trauma, I'm not earning a wage. Well, she might need to sell the car and take some of that money. This document authorizes her to sell my car. We live in a two-story home. Getting me up and down the stairs would be a chore for my wife. So she says, let's sell this house, buy a ranch-style home, put Gary in a wheelchair, get him around easier. This document authorizes her to do all those things. She sells our current house, buys the new house. This document authorizes her. So she really doesn't skip much of a beat on the legal side of things. What happens if she doesn't have that document? So same fact pattern, but now she doesn't have power of attorney. Well, she can't sell my car. She can't access that bank account. And if she goes to sell my house, the title company is going to say, we need Gary here to sign off on all the paperwork. Well, she's got to go meet with a judge. She's got to go to probate court. She's hiring a lawyer. She's going to meet with the judge, asking the judge for permission to manage what she already thought was hers. Because in our relationship, we are what's mine is hers and what's hers is hers. I don't have anything. <laughs> exactly. But, but she already had that mindset, right? Like, this is all my stuff anyway. But because she doesn't have that legal authorization, she's hiring a lawyer and meeting with a judge. That's very unsettling. Now, the judge doesn't think my wife is a bad person, but the judge expects every person might be a bad person. So we still have a process that we have to screen everybody through. So the spouses in these situations where there's no financial power of attorney and the spouses are coming to me and we're going up to meet with the judge, they're almost always saying, Gary, I feel like I'm a criminal. The judge is treating me like I did something bad that I wasn't supposed to do. And I say, no, I know it feels that way, but that's really not. We just have to filter you. We have to screen you to make sure just because you're the spouse doesn't mean you're going to do the right thing. So they do credit checks sometimes, background checks. It it can get really intrusive, I think. Now, if my spouse and I don't have that relationship where there's 100% trust going both ways, fine. We hire the lawyer, we go to probate court, and the judge is going to oversee everything. That's less risk. There's more cost, more time, but there's less risk there. So we don't bypass that risk just because we don't like the picture If we're comfortable, though, and we have that trust between us and our spouse, usually this is a good document to have. If we don't have a spouse, well, do we have somebody else in our life that we could put into that role? We can. You can put anybody on this document. I might discourage you from doing so. And In fact, there's been a few times over the years where I just said, no, I'm not going to do that. You can go to some other lawyer, but I'm I'm not going to do this. Um, But you can put anybody on there. And I've had some people get a little creative with it. So I've had clients that said, well, Gary, I'm going to put my son down. But my son cannot abuse this document if he doesn't know it exists. So we're going to sign it. Gary notarizes it. We put it in my papers, and it goes in my lockbox. Well, my son can't hurt me if he doesn't know that document's there. And that's true, unless he finds it later. (laughs) So we still see that risk. 
Nevertheless, you can put anybody that you want onto that document. Understanding the risks, understanding the benefits, and then deciding for each of us what makes most sense. But that financial power of attorney is one definitely worth considering. Next one, a medical power of attorney. This is similar to what we just talked about, but it's different in two ways. The first being the most obvious, it deals with medical-related issues. So the last one was financial. Medical power of attorney, it's for health care. It's our doctors, hospitals, um, nursing homes, whatever medical issues that might come up. In fact, a medical power of attorney can give all authority to an agent to make medical decisions on your behalf. But the other way it's different, it does wait to take effect. So just because COVID's been all kinds of fun and everybody's just enjoying continuing the conversation about it, we want to keep carrying it on. No, I'm teasing. But I will use this as an example. So I have put my wife down as my agent under the medical power of attorney. Today, I believe myself to be still competent. Let's say I'm at the doctor's office and the doctor says, Gary, I see that you haven't been vaccinated. We think you should be vaccinated. And I say, thanks, but no thanks. And my wife is at the same appointment. And she has this medical power of attorney. (laughs) She says, doctor, I think Gary's a little off. Stick him with a needle. The doctor says, sorry, wife, that's not how this document works. Gary is still able to make his own decisions. He gets to make his own decisions. Your role does not kick in until he is incompetent or until he is incapacitated. So we have the ability to make our own choices all the way up until the very end. And in fact, here in Ohio, we advocate for you to continue to make your own choices even when you're harming yourself. I have kids that come in all the time. My mom or dad's an alcoholic. They're drinking themselves to death. We really need the courts to intervene. And I said, the court's not. You can spend a lot of money on me. We can go down and talk to the judge. But the judge is going to say, mom or dad has that right to kill themselves. Even if they go that far. We don't take away your liberty. We don't take away your choice until you literally can't make those decisions anymore. So that's how that medical power of attorney works. It does wait to take effect. And like I said a minute ago, it can do all authority, including end of life. So I could put into my medical power of attorney, I want my agent, my wife, let's say, to make all medical decisions for me once I'm unable to make them myself, including taking me off of life support if it's at the very end. Some people aren't sure how they feel about this. And there's no right or wrong answer. So this is a matter of personal conviction. Some people will come into my office and say, Gary, I had to make this decision for a loved one. I had a mom or dad that did not have any paperwork. The doctor said it's the end. What are we doing with mom and dad? And I was the one that had to say, take them off of machines. And I don't feel good about that. I don't sleep well at night. I wrestle with it. Because that was my experience, I want a living will. Now, a living will is very different than anything else we've talked about up until now. The last will and testament, the trust, the financial power of attorney, and the health care power of attorney. We are delegating authority to somebody else to do something for us later. We're delegating authority, appointing somebody to make a decision for us. A living will is a declaration. It's me taking a decision away from everybody and saying, I'm making it now. And it's an end-of-life decision. The living will says, I do not want to be kept alive by life support. 
I do not want machines. And it can also say I do not want nutrition and hydration. So this is not appointing somebody to make a decision later. Again, it's taking this one decision away from them. Now, under this medical power of attorney, I can give all other authority. So I can appoint my spouse. She decides which doctors I go to, which hospitals we use. She can deal with Medicare, whatever else is coming up. She has all of that authority under the medical power of attorney. But if the doctors ever say it's the end and there's nothing more that can be done, if I have a living will, Gary already decided. The doctors will take Gary off of machines. Now they usually go to the family and notify the family. They want to give you a chance to say your goodbyes and do that part of it. But the point is, I'm taking that decision away from my agent. I'm making it. What if I don't have a living will? Or what if I'm not sure how I feel about that? I have people come into my office and I'm not here to to mess with anyone's convictions. So some people come in and say, Gary, if I sign that living will, that means doctors are ultimately going to make the decision on when my life is over. Because my family doesn't get to play a role in that decision. The doctors will decide. What if the doctors don't like me? What if I was a nuisance patient? And they're just like, oh, I can't wait to get rid of Gary. He's close enough. Let's push him across the finish line and pull the plug, right? (laughs) People have that fear. They say, that makes me nervous. I want my family playing a role. Or, what if Bill Gates is getting ready to die and he needs a liver and they want to take my liver to give it to some billionaire? Things like that. Well, okay. Again, you don't have to have that living will. Then we go back to the medical power of attorney. We make sure that the agent has that authority to make those decisions at the end. But you want to have the conversation with the agent because of that guilt factor that we talked about a little while ago. I want to go to my agent and I'm going to say, look, my conviction is the living will. But because I'm not sure I trust all these people, I'm not going to sign the living will. But I want to make sure you know what my conviction is because I don't want you feeling the guilt. So if I'm at the end, you take me off of machines. Do not leave me on machines. But you are doing what I told you to do, so it's not your decision to make. I'm not saying that works for everybody, but that can be another solution to that dilemma. But these documents, that living will and the healthcare power of attorney, they have a really close relationship, and it's one that everybody has to decide for themselves what they're going to do. And I have situations where one spouse says yes to the living will, and the other spouse says no. So we don't even have to agree. That's okay. But I will encourage us to have the conversation with our spouses again so that there's no guilt or lingering guilt there. All right. So I'm already two minutes into my question and answer session. So I think I've covered everything there that I wanted to cover, at least throw a lot of information at you in a short amount of time. Oh, look at hands going up already. Yes, sir. So... Yes, sir. Mm, Very good. So the the contract that you have at the institution is where that money is going to go. So let's say I go to the bank and I put my kids down as the beneficiaries on that bank account and I set up a trust. When I die, the bank's writing a check to those kids. So what I do instead, if I have a trust, what I'm doing instead is I'm going to the bank and not putting my kids down, I'm putting the trust down as the beneficiary. And that beneficiary designation at the bank kind of functions like a funnel. It's going to funnel that money into the bucket when I die. Yes, sir. Yep. Great question. Thank you. Yes. If you already have a will, uh-huh. you've had it for quite a long 
Um, and you want to get a trust? Does the yeah. trust trump the will? Good question. No, it does not. Always. So here's what I'm going to tell you. In that situation, if we have minor children... We, we always want a will for minor children. But if we don't have minor children, we usually want a will that complements a trust. Because sometimes we miss things. Let's say I have ten items that I want to get into my bucket. So I've got a house, I've got a car, I've got bank accounts, life insurance, investments, all these things that I'm getting into the bucket. And I put them all in there. But then, three months from now, I'm down at Disney. And they sell me on the timeshare. <laughs> But on that timeshare, I don't put my trust down as the beneficiary because I forgot about it. I wasn't thinking about my trust. So I didn't put the contract at Disney so that the trust was the beneficiary. And then I died. Well, what are we going to do with it? It's not in the bucket. You want a special will. And all joking aside, it really is a special will here in Ohio. It's called a pour-over will. This will would say the Disney timeshare belongs in the bucket. So rather than the full probate process that I would normally have to go through, if you have this special will, the judge sees you have a trust. And the judge says, you don't want that in the probate court. You want it in the bucket. So let's take it out of probate court and throw it in that bucket. It's another funnel to get it into the trust. So when you have a trust, you want that will to complement that. But let's say you do a trust and you leave the old will the way it is. And all ten things were in that bucket. So we never needed to go to probate court. Then that will never got used. We didn't do anything with your old will. Because everything was in the bucket. I just want you to be mindful of complementing that trust. If I do that trust, I probably want that special will. Because sometimes we forget things. Sometimes we just miss it. And I, as the attorney, I can create all these funnels and have you funnel things into your trust. But if you go out and buy a new car six months from now and... Don't put TOD at the bottom of that car title to your trust. Well, then you die and the car's in your name. And if you don't have that special will, guess what? 12 months, 18 months of probate court. Well, we don't want that. So if you're doing the trust, you do that special will to complement it. So I know that was a very long answer for your question, but did that answer it? So the will came first. Yeah. So you, you probably, that will would not complement the trust at all. So you would pray, if you did a trust, you would want a new will. But keep in mind, if everything's in that trust, that will is not worth the paper it's written on. Yes, because we miss things. Here's another example. So I use the Disney as an example. That's an easy one to miss. We acquire something later, and we forget about our trust, and we miss it. But what if I inherit something after I die? What if my dad had me listed as the beneficiary on his bank account? and I die, well, that could be a real mess. So this will says, if something like that happens, I want it in the trust. I want everything in the bucket, judge. No offense, judge, I didn't want to be here. Trust me, these judges are not offended. They don't want any more files. I know a lot of them. They don't want any more cases in probate court. So they just take that one item and they put it into the bucket. Yeah. I'm going to go back here first. Yeah. Yeah, good question. So with this lid, we can rewrite the lid at any point on this type of trust. And I say this type of trust. Remember, there's different buckets for different things. Some buckets you do not have the ability to rewrite. But this one that we're talking about today is a revocable living trust. Revocable living trust means you can rewrite the lid at any time. 
So, I mean, I can tell you, yep, about three to $5,000 is usually what that plan should cost. There are definitely, you can do it a little bit lower than that. My fee's lower than that. But that's usually the range that you should be looking at is about three to $5,000. And that should give you everything that you need. That's not just the trust. That would be like if you wanted to get the special will, it would include the special will. It should include all the funnels. Because if i got a house, how do I get my house into this trust? I'm going to need a funnel. We call that a deed. But we're going to funnel that into the bucket. So that fee should include all of the funnels as well and those powers of attorney and living wills. Yeah. Go over here. I'm going to come over to you guys in just a second here. I'm just going to go in order. Daniel? Yeah. How do you recommend you start finding an estate planner? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got business cards. Um, no, and, and here's what I'll tell you, because I'm not here to solicit, truthfully. I'm here on behalf of the network. Dave will tell you, I mean, I love the Assemblies of God. I've been serving them for 15, 20 years, and that's why I'm here. I'm really not looking to pick up business. I would love to serve you, truthfully I would, but what you're looking for, it's going to be hard to find, because you want somebody that isn't trying to do a bait and switch on you. Yep. And that, that can be a little bit tricky. I'll tell you, any one of you, if you ever wanted a second opinion, if you're talking to an attorney and you're not sure whether this attorney is doing something right for you and you reach out to me, I will give you a free second opinion to anybody. And I would do that even if you weren't in this room. I mean, that's just, it's the right thing to do. So just keep that in mind. If you do come across somebody, run them past me. I'll tell you whether you're getting the right thing or not. Yeah. But good question. All right. Up front. Oh, I'm sorry. It was hard, but it made things so much easier than she had Oh, good, good. It just made everything go so much more smoothly. Yeah. And um, so I just recommend that highly. Thank you. Um, the other thing is, like, talking to the Royal Bank, and she said it would be better to have the person, our person here at the bank to draw up the trust. That's puzzling to me. In fact, I might want to know a little bit about that bank. Because <laughs> here's, here's the thing. Here in Ohio, and the Assemblies of God, like we, we've had seasons where we've gone through some of this. Um, it has to be an attorney that's doing that. And it should not be the attorney at the bank. But it shouldn't be the attorney with the bank because do they represent the bank or do they represent me? Like, and here's so there are what's called corporate trustees. Let me back up real quick. So back to the bucket analogy. We have the bucket and we have the lid, right? Once we pass away, we need somebody to manage this bucket for us. Who's the person that's going to read the lid? Who's the person that's going to open the bucket and take things out? Who shows up at the closing to sell my house? I'm appointing a trustee. That's a lot like an executor under a will. The executor under a will gets their permission from the judge. The trustee gets their permission from the lid. So that's their authority. Yep, trustee, yep. So this trustee is the person that's going to manage all of that. I'm usually advocating for somebody in your family to be doing this. Because somebody in your family, they might already be a beneficiary. And if they're already a beneficiary... They're going to do this job and never think twice about the work they're doing because they're getting money out of it. And if they're not a beneficiary, 
Well, most times, family, they're doing it as a moral obligation. But let's say we don't have somebody in our family to manage the bucket when we pass away. I'm usually telling you you need a corporate trustee or a bank trustee. Banks as trustees are almost as expensive as what we're spending in probate court on that 3 to 5%. So usually, you don't want a bank trustee. Usually, we want to go to probate court. It's usually cheaper to go to probate court than to have the bank trustee. Because the bank trustee charges their fee until the very end. And if I set on my lid that my daughter doesn't get her money until she's 35, and I die today, we've got 19 years of, of trust work. 19 years of the bank taking their fees out of the bucket. If I went to the bank and had someone brought the trust, but I was the trustee, like... Well, you'd want to see who the alternate trustee is, because you... Good, good. I've never heard of that. I've been doing this for 24 years and I've never heard of that. So it just sounds a little... Yeah, I, I think you want to hire an attorney to do that that does not work for the bank. That, w- that would be my opinion. Yeah, you want to hire somebody that does not work for the bank. <laughs> Glad you asked though. I'm going to go back to Dave and then I'm going to come up to you two ladies here. Yeah. Um, what are some of the best ethical practices for ministers that uh, maybe working with a family to establish a trust? Absolutely. Absolutely, Dave. That's great. So that's one thing that every single person that comes through my office, I talk about whether we want to include your church or any ministries as part of your trust. And when we consider how much money that we're saving from the attorney's fees and the court costs and all the probate things, there should be extra money there. So we should be a little more open to kingdom-minded initiatives. So that is something that, and, and that's not me selling myself, I'm just letting you know, that's an important factor, especially for our churches. We want to know that the attorneys are like-minded. Because if they're not kingdom-minded, yeah, we, we might miss some opportunities there. But usually, Dave, what I'm doing is, is I'm talking to my client who's setting up the trust. I'm saying, let's dig into what you really want to do. And then let's bring in the pastor. And let's talk to the pastor and say, can we fulfill this vision? Because sometimes people have some pretty grand ideas. And the pastors come in and they say, yeah, that's a great idea, but I don't know that it's actually going to play out that way. And we might need to rework it. But I, as the attorney, if I'm writing all this stuff on the lid without conversing with the pastor, well, there's a chance we're going to have a mess later if the pastor says, no, we're not going to do that. And the lid says, well, we have to do that. What happens? It can be messy. So, yeah, Dave, great question. We, I would advocate for good communication, having some conversation with, with the pastor. And that might be one of the few times that we do that because usually I'm telling clients, it's just between the three of us, We don't tell our family, our kids, our beneficiaries what we're doing. You're welcome to if you want to, but no, you don't have to. That's confidential. It's just between the three of us. But in that situation, yeah, we definitely want to engage the ministry as well. Great. Yes? Yes. 
Good question. So we're going to put that on the lid, but depends on your trustee. So if my trustee is my older daughter, then I'm probably going to put less restrictions on there because her and my younger daughter, they get along perfectly well, and I know that it's going to be fine. But if it's my middle daughter, I probably want to define some things a little bit more. So yeah, and you just put that onto the lid, but you can put it onto the lid where there's discretion, or you can put it onto the lid where there's not discretion, and it just depends on who our trustee is. Great question. Very good. Yes. I just want to say thank you. I think you told oh, yeah. uh, a bunch of very scary words um, <laughs> and made it very digestible. Yeah. Thank you so much, and I will definitely take it as a spur. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Okay. And she's lived with us. She's not married. She's lived with us her whole life. She has no children. I don't know what is the right thing to do. I mean, I don't want her to leave her homeless if we die. Yeah. Our old will says that everything would be divided between them. But is it better to write a new will and say how we feel about that or to do a trust? Mm. Because I have two grandchildren and a great-grandchild. I don't want yeah. to... That's a good... That's a good question. And what... I'm probably going to say, and I should have said this before, TJ, hit the rewind button, please. (laughs) I am not able to give anybody in here today legal advice because I'm making a presentation. So I'm educating us. I'm not giving anybody in here any legal advice. So like the question I answered over there, just to be clear, I can't really give you legal advice. What I'll tell you is that's a great question, and I would love to give you a free consultation. So if you look me up, I would love to give you the free consultation. And I think there's good answers to that. Yeah. Well, and I, just, I don't even know. Like, I, I should have asked Sarah. Like, I, I just don't want to do any self-promotion if I'm not supposed to. So um, I do have business cards. I could tell you my website. Well, you can find me at GaryVinsonLaw.com. So it's G-A-R-Y-V-I-N-S-O-N-L-A-W. GaryVinsonLaw.com. Yes? So it's not county-specific? Good question. Let me tell you one other thing real quick, and I think we are at the end of time, so I might let this be the last question, but that's a great one. So with the will, a will is state-specific. We probate in the county where you last resided... But that's just the judge I'm going to. Your will, an Ohio will, is good no matter where you live in Ohio. Okay? So you do one will anywhere in Ohio, you're fine. It's just that's the judge I'm going to if you live in Delaware County or which county you live in. But let me tell you about the trust. A bucket is a bucket. It's going to hold your things no matter where you live. If I live in Ohio, Florida, Arizona, or hey, I'm going over to Ukraine and I'm going to be a missionary... Okay? That bucket still holds your things. Yep. So it's very transportable. The bucket is. But, but that will, if we have minor kids, we might be changing the will if we move from one state to the next. But we're not changing the bucket. We're leaving that the same. Yeah. Great.
Did they keep it? If, if you do a new one, that invalidates your old one, so you don't need it at all. Sometimes we'll contact that old law firm and tell them that we did that because we don't want confusion. If you pass away, we don't want your kids going to this law firm saying, no, this is the will, and then over here, no, this is the will. Um, but just as another thing, if you do have an attorney that's doing work for you, you're entitled to keep your originals. Keep your originals. I don't keep originals. I give all of my originals back to my clients. Because remember earlier I told you the family usually calls the attorney that's on that document? If you have those originals, they don't they can call anybody they want. One of your kids, one of your grandkids is going to grow up someday to be a very successful lawyer, and you're going to want to use them. So if you have the originals, then your family has control over everything. We don't need to call lawyers. We're not calling law firms for things like that. And there's no awkward conversation about, well, I know you did mom's will, but we're going to go use somebody else. No, just avoid that. You are entitled to keep the originals. Keep the originals. But then put them in a safer safe deposit box because those originals are very important. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.